this week on the Back Table Podcast. For the upper pole in the kidney, you know, certainly basketing involves A, a basket, and B, a ureteral access sheath usually. I don't use a ureteral access sheath all the time, but if I am going to be up there for some time, I like to put it up and to keep the intrarenal pressure down so we'd get less chance of sepsis, less pain, and then also to try and really keep all that fluid coming out because then it will basically keep it cool as well as prevent uh, sepsis as well too. Now the homium yag really with Moses will kind of let you do both fragment and dusted as well too. It's really good at fragmenting and is a pretty good duster. Thulium fiber laser is really good at dusting and not quite as good at fragmenting. This is kind of a car that wants to go fast. This is kind of a laser that just wants to dust. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. The Jose Silva is your host this week, and happy to introduce our guest, Dr. Ben Chu. Dr. Ben Chu is currently the Director of Clinical Research at the Stone Center at Vancouver General Hospital and an Associate Professor of Urology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, where he finished his medical school training in 1998. He completed his urology residency at the University of Toronto in 2003. In 2006, he completed his endurology and laparoscopic fellowship with Dr. John Denstead in London, Ontario, Canada. His main interests lie in the treatment of kidney stones disease, both treatment and prevention. He has served in multiple leadership roles in different endurology societies. Ben, welcome to the back table. Jose, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So Ben, so, so today we're going to talk about kidney stones. I mean, that that's something of your interest. My favorite topic. So we'll talk about kidney stones and, and specifically different lasers that, that, that we're using to, to treat these kidney stones. So just tell us about yourself, how stones became your passion. Well, thank you. Training with John Densett, I chose him for my fellowship because I wanted to specialize in stones. As a resident, you know, we kind of love everything. And I just found I really love the stones. I love the patient population. I love being able to make people feel better right away. I loved how it wasn't cancer and that people weren't dying for me, or at least they shouldn't be. And it was just really gratifying. It's something that I love. And it just really meshed all the technology with the scopes and the lasers and the techniques. So that's that's what I really loved about it. And Don Denstead was one of the first ones to describe using the homium YAG laser in humans, just like the story for BCG, you know, when the settings with homium YAG, they asked him, you know, what do you want to set it at? When laser first came, it was set at 0.6 joules and 6 hertz. And that was the starting setting that we always use. So that's kind of how it came about. And now there's been a lot of developments in lasers. And I can see that if you're a busy urologist and you're doing a lot of different things, it may be difficult to basically decide what laser do I get and what are all these different lasers. So I'm really glad you asked me to be on here so we could actually chat about all these differences in lasers now. Yeah, because I mean, I'm used to just using whatever is on, on the hospital, but I think now they're asking, I mean, at least in my hospital, they're asking me more input in terms of what you're using, what do you want? So so yeah, so hopefully this will, will also, also broaden my knowledge in terms of lasers. It's funny that you mentioned that you became interested in, in stones with the fellowship. My first exposure that I said, okay, I wanted to be a urologist was actually doing a PCNL. For me, it was freaking awesome just... Say, are you kidding me? You're in the kidney? What was that? I mean, I, I couldn't, I was a medical student. I couldn't believe that. So yeah, so we share that. 
So we can start with just a general mentioning of different type of lasers and then go from there. Yeah, so there's the Holmium YEG, which is still sort of the proven gold standard, probably the most popular one across the world, made by multiple, multiple different companies. And it's the tried and true that we've had. And, you know, the newer ones that have come out, the reason why the Holmium YEG is, you know, they first had to develop pulse lasers. When it was continuous, it would just generate so much heat, it would basically damage the kidney. So it wasn't until they could pulse the lasers that they could use it clinically. And once they developed that, they found that it fragmented stones really well. And this is still sort of the go-to in many, many different places. Now, the second laser that I used was only a few years ago, and that was a thulium fiber laser. And with that, when the engineers come to the OR, I think this is when we really kind of bridge the gap because we as urologists, we're really problem solvers and we know how to troubleshoot. So when the engineers are in there, they say, well, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And it's because we're compensating for what instruments we're given. We're compensating for the fact that homium yag, although it breaks up stones quite well, has a very high peak power and there's a lot of retropulsion. So the stones can move a lot, particularly in the ureter. And then it also breaks it up into big fragments. And that's why, you know, there was all these studies done on dusting versus fragmenting. And what, what's better? Is it better to basket all the stones out and fragment them? Or is it better to dust them all? And I think that sometimes we don't know what we need until it comes along because we are so used at problem solving, at getting around things. So thulium fiber came out and I think that was a real big difference. And I think a lot of people have noticed that they've been able to tackle bigger stones. There's been less retropulsion. That's been the biggest thing. And then of course, homium yang also underwent a modification as well too. And that's with the Moses technology where essentially... You know, you're shooting out one pulse first to part the waters like Moses did. And then the second pulse goes and actually hits the stone so that you get more effective fragmentation on that stone. And there's two different ways of doing that. And they're supposed to produce more dust. So that's what we're kind of looking at right now. There are even newer ones out there as well too, like the Thulio laser, the Thulium fiber laser is the one I've been working with, Olympus, the saltive laser. And so we have that one. We also have the regular just homium YEG. We have a 30 watt, which is very inexpensive and a bit of a workhorse. And then we also have the Luminous P120, which of course has the Moses technology with it as well too. So there's a multitude of lasers you can use. And like I said, I don't know much about the the new Thulio laser, but that's what we kind of have. And you know, probably the biggest question I get whenever I go to a conference or whenever I'm speaking about this is, you know, hey Ben, what laser should I buy? Let me cut to the end right here and tell you which one to buy. It depends. <laughs> you know, I must admit that I do have consulting agreements with those companies, so it's not because of that. But I, I must tell you, though, it was all homium yag, and then thulium fiber came along. We were dusting everything. It was really great. And then after about three years of using just total pure thulium fiber, I now realize when it's good to use homium yag and when you need it. So my answer, because I'm spoiled and I get to have both, I like actually having both. And I think in, depending on what you want to do, where the stone is, you probably need a bit of both lasers. And in that aspect too, then that probably means that you're probably okay with either of those lasers, either, you know, a uh, homeomiag with Moses or a thulium fiber. I think that's kind of what the main story is. But if you really want to make yourself efficient, it's really nice to have really a bit of both. And going back to what you see when you get a laser, 
Because from the machine, there's the 120, the Lumina that you mentioned, which is a big machine that you assume is 120 watts. You assume that, that it hits harder the stones, but then you have the thelium that is more compact, but then you might have uh, actually a more punch to the stone. I mean, is that what you're actually seeing or? Right. So good question. So there's totally different technologies and the 120 watt laser is essentially four 30-watt lasers. So they're 40, 30-watt cavities kind of aimed into one thing that they have to line up. And then you got to generate that into one fiber. And because the laser profile is so big, you can't make the fiber smaller than 200 microns. The thulium fiber laser can go down to 50 microns because the beam is very coherent. And the way that it's generated is much more different. It's basically through a long cable that's doped with thulium and therefore it's a much more pure coherent laser beam profile. So that's gonna have its basically its benefits as well as its disadvantages. One of the benefits is you can get a fiber down to 50 microns. I've not tried that. I've tried the 150 micron fibers, which work quite well, and you get a lot of good flow in your, your reteroscope. So you're talking about flow and, and more angulation at the level of the kidney? And more angulation as well too, for getting into the lower pole, exactly. The disadvantage to thulium fiber is the low peak power, which is also its advantage. So low peak power is basically how much energy you're getting per pulse. And I kind of liken it to how hard a boxer will hit one of those little punching bags, a little speed bag. Peak power is how hard you're hitting that bag. If you're hitting it quite low, the bag is not going to move very much. If you're hitting it quite hard, the bag is going to move quite a bit. And that's the retropulsion you're seeing. With the thulium fiber, the secret to its success basically is the lower peak power and it's very high frequency so that you're able to break the stone up into little fine bits of dust and the stone doesn't move. So you're really able to target that stone much more easily and also able to keep on that stone without it moving around. And then it just breaks up into finer pieces of dust than you can get with typical homium yag. And because the thulium fiber beam is so pure and coherent and goes straight forward, you're basically really able to target the stone quite well. But the stone has to be in front of you. And this is one thing I've learned after using thelium fiber after a few years is that sometimes your scope can't quite get there. You need a little bit of side firing. Or if you're in an impacted ureter and you actually want to get that stone out of there, I mean, how many times have we hit it with homium yag, you know, with like three hits, it breaks up and it kind of comes out of that area. So you're not operating in this very edematous, friable area. So the high peak power is not necessarily a bad thing, and sometimes you need it, particularly when you want to fragment stones and basket them out, particularly if the stone is impacted in the ureter. It's actually better to use that high peak power because you're using a big hammer and chisel rather than a very fine little kind of nail and, and small hammer to kind of just chisel away at it in a small way. But you don't get as fine a dust with the homium, but sometimes you need it. So if the calyx is off in a little corner, and you need to get some side firing because the beam is not so pure, has a little bit of side firing, that's actually the advantage to homium yag. And I've had experiences now where I've had difficulties getting to some stones, and I've had to use both lasers. We've had to use the homium yag to break it out of there. And then once you start to pop dust, where you put the fiber and your scope in the middle of the area and just go low energy and high rate to let it fly around while it breaks up into pieces, it maybe is not as efficient with homium yag, but is more efficient with thulium fiber. So I end up doing a lot of combined cases, believe it or not. It costs a little bit more, but I think you save money and time. And do you usually have both set up or is it that you start with one and then, hey, bring me the other? 
So you're right. If I have an idea that it's maybe stuck in a calyx, I usually like to have both of them in the room, or I will just start with one, perhaps, whatever they end up giving me, quite honestly, and then get the other one in if we need to. But I do actually like to start with both, and they're usually kind of very close to each other. They're just down the hallway, just outside, so it's not really a big problem if we were to go with, with, with both of them. Let's talk about energy in terms of settings. Yeah. Let's start with the whole homeum. I mean, what are your usually go-to settings for a urethral stone versus a kidney stone? Yeah. So great question. And I think there's no one right answer for this. The one thing I would caution that we always are talking to the residents about is just making sure that your max wattage in the ureter is around 10 watts. It doesn't mean you can't go over 10 watts, but 10 watts, we want to keep it below that no matter what laser you're using. Because energy is energy. The constant basically is that when you put enough laser energy in there, it takes this much energy to take one degree Celsius of one cubic centimeter of water. That constant is the same for no matter what laser you use. So we want to keep it around 10 watts or under for the ureter. If you go up a little higher, just use it very sparingly. Make sure you have cold irrigation going and don't turn your irrigation off. We used to do this with homium YAG because the stone would move. So we turn our irrigation off hit the stone because we wouldn't want it to retropulse. And that will allow that fluid to really heat up. And if you heat it up too much, you can damage the ureter. This can cause a stricture, whether you're using homium, thulium, thulium fiber, thulium YAG, all these kind of things. So really it's 10 watts in the ureter and about 20 watts in the kidney. And you can go up to 30, you know, with caution, over 30, a little bit with caution. But again, access sheath, cold irrigation. So we used to use warmed irrigation to patient temperature, 37. We now use just room temperature irrigation between 20 to 22 degrees Celsius and never turn it off just to keep it going. And then pause every 30 seconds or so. Guillaume Parika has done a study in a pig looking at how long you can actually laser until the temperature starts to go up. And this is in a pig, so it's a little different, but he measured it to be around three and a half minutes where you can laser continuously. I generally leave that a little bit shorter because besides that one study, we don't really know. And I tend to go about 30 to 45 seconds, give it a five to 10 second pause. It also lets a lot of the dust clear up too, so you can see better, see if you're missing any pieces and then kind of go from there. So that's my first thing is the safety is 10 watts in the ureter, 20 watts in the kidney, up to 30 watts with caution. And in the ureter, 10 watts and maybe up to 15 watts with caution. But again, really the important part is keep it cool, keep it running. And I think it depends on what you want to do. With homium YAG, if you're going to fragment, you know, the 0.6 and 6 works really well. And that's only 3.6 watts. You can really keep hitting that for a long time without having to raise the temperature quite a bit. So 0.6 and 6 for homium works really great. If it's a harder stone, you might want to turn it up a little bit. And 1 in 10 seems to work really well. 1 joule in 10 hertz. I'm not sure what ones you kind of like, Jose, for the homium. Yeah, usually the 0.8. And so I, I usually go about six watts in the ureter, which is 0.8 and 8, uh, so things like, something like that. But essentially, this is what happens. So I, I, that's why the laser that I have is the, the, the luminous. But recently, it got damaged, and we got a loaner that it was actually the thulium with, through, through a vendor. And then, I don't know if the rep just puts the setting that just to completely blast, obliterate the stones. So I was doing higher watts in the ureter, and it was just because of the settings that I was providing because I had no idea on what settings to use. And definitely I saw a big difference in terms of how fast the, the thulium was blasting those stones. So now that I got the, the, the luminous back, I'm starting to crank up the watts to see how much to actually have a fair ground and, and actually have a good comparison 
between one or the other. But like you mentioned, I mean, I don't see the same dusting capacity between one or the other. Definitely, it breaks very good and, and I don't have any issues, but it is different. Yeah. So I think homium yag is good for fragmentation, which is what I use it for. And then the thelium fiber is good for dusting. And you asked too about the settings. And so six watts on a homium yag versus six watts on a thelium fiber, really, you just cannot compare. It's not like you're going 60 miles an hour in a Ford versus 60 miles an hour in a Honda. It's different. It's really because of the way the peak profiles are, because of the way the the laser beam is and everything, it really is quite different. The only thing you can tell about that is that because it's watts and because that's a physics constant, the only thing you can tell is that that's going to be a similar way to basically get the heat. So it's really nothing else and it's all different. So, you know, if you're going to do 0.6 and 6 on thelium fiber, it's quite different. And when you first get it, I think the first thing you're kind of struck by is that you've had this laser for decades, this other laser that we are used to. What do I set this to? And then there are literally thousands of settings because it goes up to 2,400 hertz. You can go down to 0.025. So let me give you my readings on thulium fiber. I know it can go down to 0.025 and you have three settings on the pulse width. So pulse width is the length of time it takes to deliver the energy. A short pulse width is like a short jab from a boxer. A medium pulse width and longer pulse width is the same kind of energy, but delivered over a longer time. So if that boxer is going to hit that bag with the same energy, but over a longer time, it's not going to move back as far. So that's why a longer pulse width is supposed to do two things. One of them, decrease retropulsion. And also if you're dealing with a blood vessel, it's supposed to help with uh, coagulation and hemostasis. So if you are doing hemostasis with it, it's better to put it on long pulse width because then it just basically able to coagulate better. However, I find that the shortest pulse width of thulium fiber is still longer than the longest pulse width of homium yag. So even if you take your P120 and change the pulse width, it's still longer with the thulium fiber. So that means that you're going to get, remember with longer pulse width, you're going to get less retropulsion. It's not going to move. And it's also going to make it into finer pieces of dust just because of the way the wavelength is. So that's one thing. And the wavelength of thulium fiber is much closer to the absorption of hemoglobin and water than homium is. So thulium is going to be better for hemostasis because it is better absorbed by, by hemoglobin. So in terms of doing endopiolitotomy, it's going to be better with a thulium or less bleeding in theory. Yeah, it could, you're going to have less bleeding. I don't know about the scarring with all that, what that pretends. I, I don't know the results of that. I can't honestly tell you whether that would be better. I can tell you that doing upper tract tumors, which I get referred because I'm the endo person, it's so much better with thulium fiber because of the, the absorption of hemoglobin is so much more hemostatic. You can still continue to see. I mean, anyone who's done it with homium yag knows that by the end of the case, it's very difficult to see. It can be really hard to get hemostasis, and that's the old homium yag. So the new homium yag with Moses, if you turn Moses on because of that pulse modulation, that is also better absorbed by hemoglobin, and that actually is more hemostatic. So people doing holop will really insist on doing it with Moses because you get less bleeding with it, and it's better for upper tract tumors. I've used both, and although the Moses helps a lot, I still think that the thulium fiber laser with its absorption being at the closer to hemoglobin is better for hemostasis than, than the Moses is. 
I'm going to do a sidebar now. In terms of upper tract tumors, are you using a flexible? Are you going through the back like a PCNL? What do you usually do for that? Usually it's a flexible if we need to. And we have done some PCNLs as well too. We've done some percutaneous procedures to get some out. I've used actually a resectoscope or just get some tissue out if it's really quite large. We've backed off from that a little bit. I know some places still do that a lot. I don't know. We're always worried about seeding, but you just be careful using the resectoscope in the kidney. I've had one bad instance where we resected through basically, I think, a segmental artery. And yeah, that was not good. Once we put a Foley catheter in there to tamponade it, it was uh, it stopped it. But once we had to take it off at some point, once we took it off, the patient bled and we had to remove the kidney. The good news, well, the good news, the bad news. The good news for me was that the tumor was spread all throughout and was really spreading. So it's a good thing we took the kidney out. But I, I use flexible. And when we do that, I tend to use, um, I only use thulium fiber for that now. And I always rebook them for at least another six week look, unless it was a really tiny little thing. If it's anything where, you know, bigger than a small papillary thing, I always book them for a relook in about six to eight weeks because it's inevitable you may have missed something in there as well too, which could be an issue. And I think using adjuvant things like um, neuroband imaging, things like that can actually be helpful as well too. So going back to the kidney stones, in terms of fiber size, how do you decide what fiber you use? I mean, is it a matter of the size of the stone? Is it a matter of flow, having good flow versus good visualization, how do you determine what to use? So for bladder stones, if you're going to be doing a hole-up or a, you know, thulium fiber nucleation, then you're going to be using a 550 anyways, and you would just use the same fiber. And if you're just doing a bladder stone, probably a 550 is good for, for the, for the, for the bladder. For the ureter and the kidney, this goes for both the thulium fiber and the homium. If you're going to be working in both the ureter and the kidney, I always just end up using the smaller fiber in the ureter because I know I'm going to be going up to the kidney anyway. So if you're up in the kidney, you should always use the smaller fiber, a 200 micron, or if you're using thulium fiber, 150 micron, just because it's smaller and therefore in your working channel, you're able to get more flow through there and you also get better flexibility if you're going to go into the lower pole. If you're just in the lower ureter and using a semi-rigid ureteroscope, a 365 or 400 micron fiber is fine because it's easier to handle and you get lots of flow anyway, so that would be fine. But if there's any chance of you going up into the kidney, I would just switch to the smaller fiber. It can move around a little more in the semi-rigid ureteroscope, but at least you're using less product and you can use this one in in both the kidney and, and in the ureter as well too. Yeah, that's usually what I do. Uh, if I need, I think I'm going to go to the kidney, I just start with the 200. If not, I used to 365, and it has worked fine. Does it matter if you're using the, the rigid or the flexible in terms of energy? No, not really. Not really. I know that we kind of get concerned, and now some lasers will basically box you out and limit you to how much energy you can use if you use a 200 micron fiber. So if you're in the, the using a fiber optic, you know it might limit you if you're using a small 200 micron fiber if you have a 30 watt laser it might only limit you to 10 watts or 15 watts and then really only might get the 20 watts with a 365 and we really only get the 30 watts if you use a 500 fiber but for the fiber and also for the scope it really doesn't matter i think the biggest thing is just making sure that you're able to see some of the fiber coming out so that you know it's not right inside a not inside your ureter scope when you fire it and b that you're not, you know, hitting the stone and having it come back and damage the tip of your ureter scope as well, too. So, in terms of safety, I mean, is there something different you need to do 
depending on what laser you're using, or is essentially the same for both? So it should be the same for both. There's a bit of a nuance with epithelium fiber that I've learned, though. We're getting a few reports of, of things that we hear about just here and here anecdotally about some thermal injuries. But you can get thermal injuries with homeomega, and we, we see those as well, too. And essentially limit the number we had talked about, so around 10 watts in the ureter. And if you're going to use it over 15 watts in the ureter, use it very sparingly and making sure you pause a lot to let the irrigation go. In the kidney, using an access sheath with basically a cold irrigation and making sure that you don't turn off the irrigation. I think the biggest thing that you will find is not that there's some thought that the thelium fiber laser generates more heat than the homium YAG. The people in the physics department tell me this is not really the case. And I think what's happening is that part of it is the, you know, a little bit more absorbed in water. So you can get some more absorption in water. But I think it's because of the properties of the thulium fiber. With homium yag, we'd hit a stone, it would move. Or you'd have to pin it down in the ureter, push it against the ureter, hit it once or twice, and it would break up. You'd have to stop and then reposition it. So you're not using much energy here. You're really using it more as a chisel. Then when thulium fiber comes along, you're able to just sit there and just target the stone, and it doesn't move. And you can just keep your foot on the pedal. And in the kidney, you can keep your foot on the pedal for almost the entire case because it's not moving at all. So really, I think that's where it gets a difference is that it's not that the laser doing it, it's basically what it's allowing us to do and that the stone is not moving. So therefore we're delivering more continuous energy. We're not pausing to let that irrigation cool it down. We're not pausing to chase the stone around because the stone's always in front of us or, or more likely to be in front of us. With homium yag, the way I would counteract that with is the stone is not moving because your laser energy is less than the mass of that stone. But as the stone starts to get smaller, your laser energy may become greater than the mass of the stone when it starts to move. And same thing with thulium fiber. So when that happens, when the stone starts to move around a bit more, turn your energy down. You can turn to a higher pulse width, but just even turning the energy down at low pulse width will really be helpful. The stone won't move around as much. You're using less energy, which is going to be really helpful. And it's going to be um, a, a lot less basically dangerous to, to have any kind of thermal injury. So in terms of thermal injury, I mean, are you going to see something while you're do, doing the stone or are you going to see that afterwards if the patient comes with hydronephrosis and no stones? You're a great question. So you may not see anything at that time. If, and if you see something at that time, that's probably even, you know, indication of more damage. If you see blanching, whiteness at that time, and not from the access sheet, but from the laser, you know, it could be stray laser energy hits. It's probably more from the laser heating up the irrigation fluid and the irrigation fluid doing thermal damage to the tissue. Most cases, I would think that you would see nothing. I had one case where this has happened to me and I didn't see anything at the time. And then later on they come and it's basically just a, a scarred up kidney in that area. And if it's in the ureter, you know, basically it would just show up as a complete obliteration or stricture because it, as, it, as it heals. So let's talk about the kidneys too, per se. Uh, dust versus fragmentation and basket. I mean, what are your options or, or what do you feel about it? When do do one? What are your thoughts? I think do what you're comfortable with. I like to basically fragment and basket, especially when I'm in the distal ureter, just because it's so easy to break it up and take all the pieces out. I don't really like dusting too much in the ureter because it just means a lot more laser energy. And I think basketing in the distal ureter is, is the way to go. And even just putting it into the bladder and letting them pee it out, or you can take it out with a cystoscope afterwards. I think that's a good idea. For the upper pole in the kidney, 
you know, certainly basketing involves A, a basket, and B, a ureteral access sheath usually. I don't use a ureteral access sheath all the time, but if I am going to be up there for some time, I like to put it up and to keep the intrarenal pressure down so we'd get less chance of sepsis, less pain, and then also to try and really keep all that fluid coming out because then it will basically keep it cool as well as prevent uh, sepsis as well too. Now the homium YAG really with Moses will kind of let you do both fragment and dusted as well too. It's really good at fragmenting and is a pretty good duster. Thulium fiber laser is really good at dusting and not quite as good at fragmenting. This is kind of a car that wants to go fast. This is kind of a laser that just wants to dust. Because of the wavelength of it and the pulse width and just the way it's all delivered, it's really just a, a built to be a dusting kind of machine. You can try and fragment by lowering the rate a little bit and going higher up on energy. So I know that Mantu Gupta does somewhere like around one joule and two hertz. So not too high in energy, but basically very low rate. So you can control it really easily. And that's good for fragmenting. This is on thulium fiber I'm talking about. You know, we all know that one joule and 10 hertz on homium YAG works great. Works really well for basically fragmenting and basketing out. But I think it depends on the stone. Some stones are harder to basket out than others, particularly the soft ones where they just really want to just dust into pieces. And my best case scenario is basically to make it into chunks with a laser. And that's with either laser, depending on how hard it is. And then use thulium fiber to basically um, pop dust it. And basically where I sit in the calyx, pop dust for 30 to 45 seconds. And for that setting, I like to use 0.1 joule and 200 or 0.15 joules and 240 hertz, all at low, low pulse width, short pulse width with a thulium fiber. For Moses, what I would tend to do for that is basically use 0.2 and 80. You can use that just sparingly. And, you know, I don't really get a feel sometimes of the Moses contact versus Moses distance. Kershid Ghani, who's much more of an expert in Moses than I am, prefers the distance, even if you're in the ureter. So I've tended, I've, I've tended to use distance more. I don't know if you've, what experience you have with Moses. That's what I have. So I use distance in the kidney and I use contact in the ureter. That's what the reps tell me to use. Exactly. <laughs> I go by the reps. Kirsten has done some studies like on bench with like high-speed cameras and things like that. So the what it does is, I can't remember which one it is, but with the first beam that comes out on the contact, I think it's only half the size of the second beam. And then the second beam comes out and it's twice as big. With the distance one, I believe it's, it's basically the same size as the second beam. So you're sending out two equal size beams, but in quick succession to sort of part the water, second one hits the stone. He's shown, I think, I believe I remember this correctly in his bench studies, that the distance is a little bit more effective. So that's what I've been using with that. Effective into fragmentation, dusting, or, or both? I think fragmentation, I think. And with the Moses, it's supposed to make finer pieces of dust, and it does make better pieces of dust than when you have it turned off. I think the finer dust is made with thulium fiber, though. So it's sort of all on a continuum, and it kind of depends on what you need to do with, with, your, with each case. Ben, in terms of, let's say, a recurrent stone former, how important is actually having a piece of stone? Right. All the guidelines say we need stone analyses. We've all shown, too, and even with cysteine stone formers, there's some publications out there that show that these patients actually even transform from cysteine stone formers into calcium oxalate stone formers as well, too. So I think all the guidelines say it's really important for stone prevention. 
I'm going to fight back on that one a little bit. I don't know if it is. We tend to give the patients some strainers afterwards to try and collect pieces if we're dusting. And even if we are, you know, dusting, sometimes Olivia Traxer has shown that you can actually aspirate out of your ureter scope, out of the access sheet to try to get some pieces to send that off. And even if you don't see any visible chunks in there, they're often still able to analyze that with uh, atomic absorption spectroscopy. So it probably is, I think it's helpful. And in some people, really helpful. Like you said, recurrent people who are getting, you know, stones all the time, we definitely should figure out what they're what they're getting. Kids, for sure. And of course, if we're if we're worried about any kind of infection, we should figure out whether or not this is struvite. And in those cases, you know, we'll even send them off for a culture as well, too. Although I must admit, I'm not sure if our labs doesn't have a protocol for testing it, but it seems to be a bit sort of hit or miss with that, you know, and there's a debate about whether to grind the stone up, what do you grind it up in? And, you know, how do you send it? And what, what, what do you do to see if you could, there's actually bacteria in there? We're actually doing a study on our, from our EDGE Research Consortium, looking at stones and basically sequencing to see. So you don't have to grow bacteria out of there. You should look for bacterial DNA. And I think that's going to be a lot more sensitive. I've used the vacuum device. The CVAC. I've not used that one. I don't know if it's licensed here. Have you used it? I have. Yeah. How is it? So right now you're doing it, I will say blindly, because it's basically based on fluoro. Supposedly, they, they're coming with one that has a camera that you can actually suck this stone about look at it. So we'll see if that comes out. I think it's good for big stones in the kidney that you want to get some samples. It's easier for small fragments to be sucked out instead of just going in and doing the basket multiple times. So once you do dust, you can vacuum that conglomerate of dust that forms that you never know if it's going to stay there in that lower pole. Uh, form a, a new stone. So uh, it helps with that, I think. I think this is going to be the next thing because, you know, we're always talking about, well, not always, now we're talking about renal pressure now that we have these scopes that can measure intrarenal pressure. We have these access sheets that can provide suction now. And I haven't used that one, but I have used other ones like Clear Petra. So that one you can just kind of intermittently kind of suction and, and turn it on. And I think that helps keep the pressure down for sure. And also can help get some of the little pieces out. I think it's more meant for mini PCNL than it is for ureteroscopy. But there's also a navigable ureteral flexible access sheath as well too, which uh, is a one from China essentially that you can actually move around. And I don't think it's quite as blind, but I think this is going to be very helpful as well too to get rid of a lot of these pieces and will probably help revolutionize, you know, basically bringing that ceiling up to when you need to do a percutaneous nephrolithotomy because we can get much bigger stones with ureteroscopy. And definitely with these new higher power lasers, both with Moses and with TFL, I think it's a, a natural progression to sort of help us out in doing that. In terms of new technologies out there, you mentioned the scopes that, that can analyze pressure. How big is that in terms of right now, we don't know what's going on. We, we try to stop irrigation, continue. So is that going to help being more effective, better, better surgeons? So the rate, um, Naeem Bojani and I have done some meta-analyses as well as looked at a very large IBM data set in the United States, which is basically all employed people in the US looking at about 105,000 ureteroscopies. I was a bit shocked at the rate of sepsis after ureteroscopies, and these are coded sepsis. In the meta-analysis, it was about 5%, and in the IBM data set, it was 5.5%. So like, that's like one out of 20 and it seems really kind of high because I don't think one out of 20 of my patients get septus, but they probably do and they may go to another hospital and other things. So it's probably is a real number. 
It's a smallish number, but it's also very costly as well, too. We do know that when you get sepsis, it, it's really, you know, quite expensive to the healthcare system and also personally to the patient as well, too. So I think it will help looking at pressure. I think these other new scopes, too, is also going to, are also going to measure temperature. So this whole thing we're talking about with the lasers and the temperature, we'll be able to measure and get a real handle on it. But the problem is, though, you know, we're going to get this new piece of information while we're operating. And it's not like a pulse oximeter where 100% is good and 90% is bad. Like we don't really know what the safe intravenal pressure is. We may have some of these other things that are that are basically historical, uh, you know, the 40 centimeters of water and these kind of things. But this is over time with someone with a neurogenic bladder causing renal damage. This is something totally different. So I think the first step once we get this information, we're trying to do this now, is to figure out what is a safe intravenal pressure and at what limit does that basically go over you know, we published, uh, Naeem Bojania published in our first 50 on the Lithview Elite uh, ureteroscope from Boston Scientific that measures pressure. And we were able to kind of just look at it. And the average pressure is about 28.5 centimeters of water in general. But over, we think it's probably not one peak pressure. It may be over a certain amount of time, pressure that's just generated. And over time, maybe that floodgate opens. But essentially, we don't know. And I can't tell you what the safe pressure is. I can just tell you that it'd be good to try to keep it down. I think those suction catheters will help in addition to all those other things that we have. And probably the other new technology we have, uh, the one from Johnson & Johnson and Oris Medical, which is the Monarch uh, robot. So there's a new robot coming out for ureteroscopy, which has just been FDA approved. However, it is not currently in sales yet. They're just doing a limited medical evaluation, which will start um, sometime this year. And essentially, one of the things that you could do with this, besides just maneuvering a ureteroscope using a game controller, is to do a combined PCNL access where it helps you with the access. And you put a tiny sheath through the back that has suction on it. And as you laser the stone, and when I've done this in, and I've, I've tried this in cadavers and in pig studies, it all just magically just gets sucked up in through the, the back. So it's really quite amazing. And the way that this robot helps you get access to the to the percutaneous system, they had urologists coming who'd never got their own access, only relied on radiologists. And they were able to get access within less than a minute because it's all electromagnetic guidance. Um, I think it's also going to change the, the stone world as well to it. And in, in conjunction with these new high power lasers, I think we're really looking quite good. So how does that one work? In the system that I right now, we have eight hospital and one hospital, that is the one that does all the research. They actually have that machine or, or the, the, the ones that, that gives you the access. How, how does it work? So when you put up a special ureteroscope inside that's controlled by the robot, but what it does is the robot knows in, in real space where that is. So it's sending out a little signal. There's an electromagnetic field. And then your needle also has electromagnetic guidance on it too. So there's actually a wire on it. And then you have an electromagnetic reader, which tells you where is the tip of your needle in relation to the tip of your ureteroscope? So you have to park the ureteroscope in your calyx that you want to get to, and then you watch it come through. And basically, there's no fluoro. You don't even need fluoro. And it basically knows what your trajectory of your needle is to where that calyx is. And if you just hold respiration, you can just basically push through, and it literally can take less than 30 seconds to get access. And it's, uh, it's quite accurate. And like I said, we tested it with urologists who don't get their own access and it works great. Awesome. Looking forward to that. So Ben, uh, I want to ask you, in terms of the, the sepsis study that you, that you guys did, do you saw a difference between having a pre-stented kidney versus a uh, non-stented? Yeah. 
Thank you for mentioning that. So pre-stented definitely lowers the intrarenal pressure. Patients who were pre-stented all had lower intrarenal pressures than patients who were not pre-stented. And of course, the access sheath also showed that they, they had lower pressures as well too. And we had a very small sample size, but the other one was actually some ethnic diversity. So the Asian patients that we had, and it was a very small number, had much higher pressures than the non-Asian patients as well too. I think it probably could do with a bit of body habitus as well as a bit of ethnicity, but that's something to keep in mind. Pre-stented for sure definitely helps. Now with the infection rate, there have been some studies, I've not been involved with these. If you are stented for sepsis, Naeem Bojani's published on this, if you leave it too long, so when is the ideal time to operate on someone after you've inserted a stent for a septic stone? This is a classic question. It's probably within, depending on the patient, it's probably within days. So if they were really sick in the ICU on vasopressors, you might want to wait at least a week. If they were just, you know, febrile and then they got stented and were okay and got, you know, discharged a day or two afterwards and was fine, that's probably okay. So sort of light infection versus, you know, sepsis requiring, you know, medications to keep their blood pressure up. But the studies overall do show that when he looked at, when Naeem Bojani looked at this, basically patients that were stented longer than two weeks actually started to get a higher rate of sepsis afterwards. So the stent is good and then it becomes bad. And if you waited longer, say four, six, eight weeks, their, their rate actually went up a little bit. So the ideal time is somewhere around two weeks to get that definitive ureteroscopy done. Yeah, you usually wait about a week uh, unless it's a very, very sick patient. And I mean, you're at the mercy of when, when they tell you, the ICU tells you when the patient is ready or, or, or the hospitalist. So Ben, I think we covered a lot of topics today. Any final words? No, I think the biggest thing is just safety. And when you get a new laser, just don't be bamboozled by the thousands of settings. And just remember, look at the watts and look at where you are. 10 watts in the ureter, 20 watts in the kidney you can go up a little bit but just be careful. Use cold irrigation, use an access sheath to get the irrigation going. Don't turn it off and pause every 30 to 45 seconds, or according to Dr. Guillain-Parique, you know, every three and a half minutes, but uh, don't just laser for 20 minutes straight. Excellent. Those are very good recommendations that I definitely sometimes, in, at least in the kidney, I stay just, I fall asleep just hitting the, the, the laser. <laughs> Good to know. You say in the ureter, I, I take a break, but yeah, in the kidney, sometimes I, I stay there for a big stall, I stay longer. I'll also add that to the list. Okay, so Ben, thank you for being back table. Hope you enjoyed it, and hopefully you will be back talk about something else. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Jose. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Chi Ding, administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.